This episode is supported by Zencaster. It's an all-in-one podcast production suite, and it gives you studio-quality audio and video from home without needing all of the technical know-how. I switched to Zencaster for recording my interviews a few months ago, and I have been so impressed. It records each person locally, so even if the internet wobbles, you won't miss a beat. Learn more and save 30% on your first three months at zencaster.com pricing and enter the code GIRLBONERRADIO. What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. We probably all know someone who has had a positive experience or even found love through a dating app. And with or without apps, most of us have faced typical ups and downs in the sex and dating realm. The stories you will hear today are not those. The positive side of each story involves how someone got out. For Carrie, out of the grasp of sex and love addiction, terms that are both common and controversial. For Shaney, away from dating apps. We will start there with Shaney. Shaney Silver told me that she has always been an early adopter of things. And so I remember using dating websites. As soon as she was even old enough to think about dating. One of the earliest people on like OkCupid when it was a website. I did a little bit of online dating in law school. I would say after my, my law school relationship ended when I was about 26, I really started like going full force into, you know, every dating website there was, and then later every app there was, I spent about 10 years total on various apps doing what everyone does, right? Just sort of swiping their adulthood away. Swiping their adulthood away. That makes me really sad. A 2019 study from the Pew Research Center showed that 12% of adults in the U.S., report having found a committed relationship or gotten married thanks to an app. It also showed that over one-third of people who've used the apps stopped using them after they received unsolicited explicit messages or were called an offensive name. 9% said they were physically threatened. And another study from last year linked dating app use with social anxiety and depression. And whenever, you know, you'd get super frustrated with the apps, you would do what's called taking a break, Um, never really stopping to ask myself if I wanted to be doing something at all, if it required taking a break. But I would always come back, you know, because there is this sort of digital dating dependency that we have developed as human beings. And it always feels like if you're not on the apps, you're not doing enough to find someone. And that can feel really low and shameful and guilt ridden and things like that. And all I ever found was just disappointing date after disappointing date or micro trauma after micro trauma or 
you know, just so much dismissive and disappointing treatment. And I was voluntarily putting myself there. Are you comfortable sharing an example of that treatment? Sure. Um, and I typically don't like to tell horror stories because I find that um, they're not they're not entertaining, right? And horror stories have become, rather than the exception, they've become the rule. I don't like to discuss it often, but in this context, to give you a little bit of fodder as to why and how I was able to permanently delete them, I will give you a, a very concrete example. One of the last days I ever remember being on a dating app, a man sent me a very, very lewd message that essentially suggested that we have sex. And he hadn't even said, you know, hello or told me his name, nothing. And I wrote him back and I said, does this ever actually work for you? Does doing this ever actually work? And he wrote back and he said, you know what Tinder is, right? And I had never been more dismissed and degraded. It was just one of the most disgusting things that had ever been said to me. And it was so impactful. And yet it was said by a stranger. I'll never forget it. I will never forget that moment as long as I live. That's sort of one of those really illustrative moments that shows you the regard with which single women are treated in the dating space. We are, you know, we're just this endless buffet of faces for people to swipe through. And I really do think there is an element of free sex work that, that we're viewed through. Otherwise, you know, ghosting wouldn't be a thing. Ghosting after sleeping with someone wouldn't be a thing if we hadn't built this culture up. If we hadn't made it okay, it wouldn't be happening. But we live in this culture where, you know, instead of calling out bad behavior and, and doing something that, that counts as a consequence against it, we give it a cute name like ghosting. It isn't ghosting. You're being dismissed and ignored by a human being who actively wanted to spend time with you in the first place. That's what ghosting is. Somebody pursued your attention. Somebody pursued your company on purpose. And then once they got what they wanted, they dismissed you and ignored you. Let's not call it ghosting. Ghosting's cute. And that's not accurate enough for me. Oh, that's so powerful. And you're so right. <laughs> it's like a cutesy term. We wouldn't use that if someone just doesn't, sh your doctor just doesn't show up to your doctor's appointment. Like someone doesn't care about you. And yet there is this addictive kind of nature that's built into it. What kept you coming back? Yeah. I mean, at first it's just the shame of singlehood. I don't want to be single anymore. And dating apps hold themselves out as a solution to singlehood. So I'm going to swipe until I find somebody. You will believe things for a long time if you think they will lead you to love. And I believed dating apps nonsense for 10 years. I kept swiping for 10 years because surely he has to be in there somewhere, right? Because other people find somebody. I was I was leaning into a narrative that I was being trained to lean into. They they operate very much like slot machines, very much like gambling. Uh, and gambling is very addictive. And I really don't see dating apps as anything different. If you just pay a little bit more money, you'll get in front of more people. If you just pay a little bit more money, you can boost your profile at this time of day when everybody's on the apps. They're They're addictive because they're designed to be. So if you find yourself addicted to dating apps, it's by design. It's not something you did wrong. It's very much by design. We are addicted to these things because we're ashamed of being single and we never want to feel like we're not doing enough to solve this problem. And on top of that, we have been trained to rely on these apps by an industry that makes more money the longer we're single. Around the start of 2019, Shaney said enough is enough. She knew she needed a change in her life. And that sense prompted her to ask herself important questions. 
I had been just sort of, I don't like the word hopeless, but I was just kind of directionless. I really wasn't seeing a future for myself that I liked. And I was doing some growth work to try to feel better about my own outlook. And for the very first time, I asked myself why I was allowing all of the things in my life to be there if they weren't serving me. Like, why would I have anything in my life that wasn't serving me? Asking myself that question, the biggest thing that wasn't serving me, that had never served me, was dating apps. Dating apps were only making me feel worse. They were never making me feel good. They were never delivering a relationship ever. Not once in 10 years have they done that. So dating apps were not serving me specifically. They never had. And so if they're not serving me, why am I allowing them to be in my life? These just don't work for me. That is allowed to be true. And I am allowed to walk away from them. I don't have to just, you know, blindly believe in these stories of how people met on dating apps. I can believe stories of how people met in real life too. So I deleted my dating apps. I have never once redownloaded, but far more important than that is that I have never wanted to redownload, not once. And so much good has come into my life since dating apps left it. Did you expect to feel so glad you quit immediately? No, God, no. I expected to like a week later be like panicking, like I'm not doing enough to end my single life. And what really helps solidify a decision like that is seeing all the good that follows from saying no to something that isn't right for you, saying no to something that hurts you, saying no to something that isn't serving you is followed often in my experience by something wonderful. And so I took all of the time that I was spending swiping and it was a lot of time and I started a podcast instead. And now that's like my career. <laughs> so it, uh, it was followed by a lot of good. So I had a lot of reinforcing good come from letting go of something that wasn't serving me, freeing up my life, freeing up my headspace, freeing up my energy. So much good has flowed in from that. Shani started her podcast, A Single Serving, because she felt the world was lying to single women about who they are and their place in the world. She kept hearing harmful narratives about how hard single women have to try to find someone and the shame that builds up around not doing so. And all of that work has led to the book she recently released. Um, my book is called A Single Revolution, Don't Look for a Match, Light One. And it is a book full of all of those narratives, all of those limiting, self-worth demolishing, lack-soaked, shame-soaked messages about singlehood. It takes them and it reframes them to see them from a different perspective, one that is full of validity and self-worth and wholeness, realness, just gives realness and, and a sense of this is a right way to be, to singlehood. It just tells the truth. It is very much a guidebook for how to feel better about being single. We haven't attributed value to singlehood. We've only attributed shame to it. We've never taken the time to see the value in being single. I've taken the time and I've put it into a book. And I hope that it leads to single women appreciating this time in our lives while we have it. Because I do believe if you want to partner, you will. Maybe not on the timeline that the Hallmark movies want you to, but maybe on a timeline that's much more customized to you. And maybe that's better. Maybe that's allowed to be better. 
If you are feeling hooked on dating apps and feeling pretty miserable, yet the idea of quitting them feels daunting, Shaney wants you to consider looking at it all from a different angle. We don't want to delete our dating apps because that's going to lower our chances, right? But what I would ask you to look at is how many chances have you already given dating apps and has it delivered on any one of those chances? You're still single. You're still using dating apps. The dating apps aren't working. It's allowed to be true. That doesn't mean you've done something wrong. That doesn't mean you're never going to find someone. But if dating apps feel bad to you, listen. Listen to that. Listen to what that is telling you. Listen to what all of the time, the years, the money, listen to what all of that is telling you. We have this false adage in our head like dating apps are the way everyone meets now. No, they aren't. No, they aren't. If, if you can cling to the stories of how people met on dating apps, I would encourage you to seek out stories of people that met without them because those are just as true. Those are just as valid and those are just as abundant. We don't have to dedicate ourselves to this digital option just because it's there. They're still very new. We don't yet know the long-term mental health effects of dating apps. But I can tell you something. I don't think they're going to be good. I don't think they're going to be very good. You're allowed to reflect on, is it lowering your chances? Or is it taking back agency over your own life and not letting dating apps have such a hand in how you feel? Learn more about Shaney at shaneysilver.com or on Instagram at shaneysilver. And find her book, A Single Revolution, on Amazon. Speaking of embracing yourself as you, no partner required, The Pleasure Chest has declared 2022 as the year of you. They are reminding us to reset and recharge our vibes. To get started or to deepen your relationship with your sexual self, shop their sexy self-care collection, which is full of toys to help you put yourself and your pleasure first. Visit thepleasurechest.com to learn more or to start shopping. While you're online, remember to check out Zencaster for all of your podcasting or remote conversation needs. They even provide transcripts. Head to zencaster.com slash pricing and enter the code GIRLBONERRADIO to save 30% on your first three months or a full year of their professional option. So Carrie Cohen is an author too, as well as a psychologist and licensed therapist who specializes in sex and relationships. Her memoir, Loose Girl, a memoir of promiscuity follows her journey from depending on sex and male attention and gradually toward true intimacy. Her latest book, released last year, is called Crazy For You, Breaking the Spell of Sex and Love Addiction. She wrote that she became a therapist because she desperately wanted to understand why she and many others struggle to cultivate intimacy quote, this thing we want so badly. Carrie's own experiences in this tangled web started during a hot summer day in her youth. At the start of Loose Girl, she wrote, I am 11 the day I begin to understand what it means to be a girl. 
a middle-aged man sees her walking by and says, hello there, with a wink. And for the first time, she wrote, she was aware of her tiny gym shorts and the way her shirt felt tight over her training bra. She and the man have this silent exchange as the man's eyes are friendly and suggestive, lingering on her. After he drives away, she thinks, well, that was easy. Puberty had hit, and I was suddenly getting male attention quite easily. And this was an antidote to the fact that I was not getting the attention that I really desperately needed at home. My parents had just divorced, but the divorce was not really particularly traumatic or anything. It was just that everything suddenly kind of fell apart, and then my mother left. My mother moved away to actually the other side of the world, to the Philippines, to go to medical school, you know, which is cool, but she left her kids. And we moved in with my dad, and my dad was a lot of fun, but it was like having a friend and not so much the parenting. I guess the thing was is that I was quite alone. And I felt quite lonely and empty and needy. And so when I was suddenly getting attention from strangers and they were men, it was like a light bulb went on and it, it was just the start of my journey. A journey into sex and love addiction, which she describes in Crazy For You like this. Sex and love addicts. Use sex and or love to avoid real intimacy and connection and to escape uncomfortable feelings. Many experts in the sex ed and sex therapy circles take issue with the addiction framing for a few reasons, including that the symptoms don't necessarily fit traditional models of addiction. As a side note, what matters to me isn't so much the terminology but that people get the support they need. And I personally think that some of the discussions around the controversy of sex and love addiction miss a lot of nuance. Carrie's take does not. She describes sex and love addiction as a process addiction, meaning it involves compulsive behaviors. Compulsive sexual behaviors, by the way, is the name that some experts prefer. She also describes it all as a spectrum, and she doesn't separate sex addiction from love addiction, given that there's so much crossover and much of it is culturally cued. Carrie talks a lot about gender roles and expectations in Crazy For You and how they fuel and shape one's experience with sex and love addiction. Because of those factors, many of us can probably relate to parts of her story, whether we have struggled with related compulsions or not. It's also a big reason that Carrie didn't realize that she was struggling and needed support early on. I didn't really know. I knew that there was something up with me and boys. Felt quite needy around boys. I definitely pushed them away while also being very available to them in all ways. I definitely began to get a sense probably in end of college, maybe. At first, I feel like I was just experiencing what it's like to be a girl in our culture, in many ways, a heterosexual girl, because there's so much that is not uh, connected to our agency for so long. 
I definitely felt needy and I was extremely available with not a lot of boundaries to men and boys in many ways. It's not solely an addiction. And I feel like that's a really important point about sex and love addiction. And also a part of why it's a spectrum rather than a, like a substance use addiction. There is an, an actual neurobiological aspect that truly does look like addiction. And that can come into play in various ways. But so much more of it is not about that. And is, is more about the ways that sex and love and relationships and all those things are just sort of like existential needs. And, you know, really, I mean, I guess sex to some extent, biological need in our culture, and we get all these mixed messages. So existential needs as humans, but then we get all these cultural messages that are just so all over the place. At the same time, she said, there's not a lot of clarity or guidance about having these things we all need. Instead, we get harmful messages. So the symptoms were probably more for me, like feeling like I want this thing so badly from this man. And then as soon as I get it, I'm like, nah. And actually the addiction is, is really in many ways to the wanting. So it's kind of the inability to have a real relationship where true intimacy and connection was happening. It's like I was the unavailable one for the most part. Other symptoms would be like often needing, you know, a bunch of men kind of on the sidelines for extra attention in, in case I wasn't, you know, getting what I felt like I needed in a relationship. I mean, sex and love addicts are really like terrible users of people. It's really terrible. We're pretty awful. And it's funny because we we feel so often like, you know, I'm the one who wants to have this relationship. I'm the one who wants intimacy. And, you know, it's just all these other people don't. And it's just not true. <laughs> we're, the, we're the really awful ones, you know? Of course, when Carrie talks about sex and love addicts being awful, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek. She has needed to find humor in all of this as part of her healing. She also feels enormous compassion and empathy for folks who are struggling. It not only led into the work she does today, but she understands what it's like to reach a point at which you feel completely hopeless. I don't know what it's like to be other kinds of addicts, but I will say that the, the immense emotional pain of being a sex and love addict is really the thing. I mean, I have so many clients who come, I mean, they're just desperate for somebody to help them. Carrie wrote Crazy For You because she feels that there are too few resources for folks in recovery or seeking recovery from sex and love addiction. The only program that she knows of, really, is Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, which uses a 12-step approach patterned after the ones used by Alcoholics Anonymous. And most people who have that as a specialty in their practices or in programs, they use that step process approach. Carrie values the community and group aspects of the program, she said. Given that folks who are struggling experience so much shame and feel so alone. But she doesn't consider everything they provide helpful. 
some of the things that they suggest that we do, like it's a substance addiction, also kind of like it's only an addiction instead of understanding all these other aspects that have to come into play. For instance, they have like a period of abstinence that you're supposed to do, where you're supposed to figure out what you're addicted to inside of these things, and then spend a certain amount of time not engaging at all. You might abstain from sex with a partner, from dating, or masturbation, for example. Their literature even calls such abstinence a, quote, beginning point in sobriety. I feel like, and I don't just feel like, I mean, it's kind of a fact. You can't work on any of the stuff unless you're involved in it. And that's a very different thing from something like, you know, cocaine or alcohol, where, you know, you really can just get those things out of your life and not not have to do that again, you know. But it's like there's no way to not be constantly triggered when you're in the midst of engaging around sex and love and relationships if you're a sex and love addict. And that's the only place you're going to be able to do the work. So really the work in many ways becomes a practice. Carrie said that that work is twofold. The first part involves building self-awareness around your challenges, understanding what sex and love addiction looks like for you, and sorting out those crossovers with cultural messages about sex and love. So the self-awareness is a huge part and ongoing. Just noticing how, you know, it plays out in your life, what what you do and learning to experience it as less of like this big, meaningful thing. With the awareness comes the ability to also a little bit make fun of yourself around some of it. Because some of it, she said, is absurd. And recognizing that can help. The other piece she talks about is learning to tolerate your wound-based pain. The angst you experience because of emotional wounds, rather than trying to get other people to make it feel better. That's like all day long in a relationship in many ways, until you reach a point where it's only sometimes. So when I say learning to tolerate it as opposed to taking care of, I mean, you are taking care of it yourself. There does have to be some amount of self-soothing, but it's more about self-containment and learning to tolerate it rather than constantly acting out. It's really learning to notice when you're doing that and tolerating the anxiety or pain of not being able to get it. She pointed out that these issues go beyond sex and love addiction, that it's common for most anyone to try to escape difficult feelings by relying on others to sort of fix them rather than learning to tolerate those feelings. But it's all more severe and potentially debilitating if you're on the SLA spectrum. As I mentioned, considering these issues in addiction is controversial. Even Carrie herself, someone who specializes in treating and writing about sex and love addiction, has mixed feelings about it. I think it's important that there be controversy because for exactly the reasons that there are. A lot of people come to me and think that maybe they're sex addicts because of behavior around sex that is just simply not accepted in a mainstream way. And that's not sex addiction, you know? 
Masturbating most days, for example, is not in itself a sign of addiction. Feeling as though you can't go about your daily life because you're constantly thinking about or engaging in masturbation, though, is. I both value the phrasing using the word addiction, and I also kind of hate it for the same reasons. And also because it's not just an addiction. There's like this addict part, but there's so much else that applies to it. But the reason I I do hold on to that is first of all, because it's just, it's in our lexicon now and people have heard of it. And so it's a way to talk about the issue and a way to talk about the phrasing. Another reason she holds on to the sex and love addiction phrasing is because it really is different from things like having only compulsions or struggling with constant longing for sex or romance. It took me a long time to figure out, like, why is this a a real problem and not just, for instance, being a woman who wants to have a lot of sex and will easily have, you know, sex with, with lots of different people? And so I did have to figure that out, and it is different. Some of that distress does come from what she described as, quote, the cultural osmosis that's in all of us. Things like the Madonna whore complex and what's considered normal or acceptable among different genders. But when you're a sex and love addict, the devastation and the pain of the experience is very different from just stepping outside of cultural mainstream expectations. So there really is, there's a massive amount of distress that comes from more like wound-based pain, attachment issues that got developed. You don't have to have had a terrible childhood or attachment issues to develop sex and love addiction, Carrie said. You merely have to live in this culture. Or you could be someone who's especially prone to addiction regardless. Still, childhood wounding is more often part of it all than not. Another constant seems to be the impact of gender messaging. Given that women and femmes and anyone reared as a girl are still taught that, in many ways, finding love, finding the one, is how we find value, and boys and men often learn that being turned on or having super frequent sex is where it's at for them, it's common for folks who are struggling to use different language. Those things can also make it more difficult to get appropriate support. I really appreciate the ways that you speak about the gender messaging because I've interviewed several people who either were struggling with sex addiction, love addiction, or both. And every time I have, I hear from folks who are struggling themselves. And I've noticed that like men are much more likely to say that they have sex addiction. Women are much more likely to say they have love addiction. And then the messages are the exact same. It doesn't seem different to me. Yeah, it makes it so much harder. And that's the other thing with SLAA that I wasn't finding any help or or attention to is that it's like there's almost no addressing of the cultural issues and messaging and how much that increases an experience of sex and love addiction. She pointed to two main problems. The messages we get around romance and the messages we get around sex. You know, in our media, for the most part, most love stories that we see involve romance. And romance, by definition, is star-crossed lovers. It's like 
people who can't actually be together. That is so depressing. She listed examples in her book. The Notebook, Say Anything, Titanic, Romeo and Juliet. Not being able to be together is like kind of the definition of romance. And then it's always like the relationship itself is treated like a destination. You know, it's like the movie will be all about how they couldn't be together and then it ends with they get together. And it's like, but then what? We don't learn anything about how to have a relationship. That's one reason that lots of sex and love addicts, she said, are attracted to unavailable people. And as for the sexual messaging that gets in the way, the most harmful ones tend to impact women. We are made to feel like, A, we can't have sex um, until a certain time, or you know that, that as soon as we have sex with this person, then they're going to go away. And B, there's pressure, especially for women, to have to look a certain way to be considered sexy or even sexual. Just like her own experience at age 11, girls and women learn from early on that our sexuality relies on straight men's desires, what they want from us. We know quite early on that our bodies aren't ours. And so we have to live a lifetime of not being able to inhabit our own bodies from a personal core place. And we really have to fight for that a lot. That also gets in the way for sex and love addiction, of course. And because then sex for women winds up being quite performative often. And regardless of gender, she said, sex and love addicts use sex. Sex and love addicts use sex pretty much always, like, I mean, until they become really aware of that and begin to stop using it and instead have sex from a place of like, I'm doing this out of my true, like wanting to be inside my body and have sex. In Crazy For You, she writes that who you are in the bedroom is who you are everywhere. She illustrates it with the story of a woman named Sarah who fakes orgasms with her husband. And throughout the rest of her life, she sacrifices her own needs to avoid confrontation. If you fake an orgasm, you're doing that instead of speaking up, instead of like taking care of your own self. So much about sex, this is actually the most important part of it. Sex is one of the most vulnerable things that we can do. And in order to be vulnerable, there's so many things that get in the way. All of us have things that get in the way of our vulnerability. Whatever's getting in the way of your vulnerability is what you're doing in sex. And you're also doing it out in the world. Carrie's healing journey and working with folks going through similar trials have taught her a lot. One big takeaway, she said, is realizing that it is okay to cultivate relationships that don't match up with societal norms. One of the things that's, I think, very cool that is available, honestly available to all of us, but is certainly available to sex and love addicts, is that we're never going to reach a point where probably, I mean, I'm not dead yet, but but we're probably never going to reach a point where what the world suggests is a healthy relationship, that we would be able to do that. So instead, you know, we're still, we're alive now. I am very supportive of people being able to be in relationships that maybe don't look like what would be healthy for other people. 
the definition in my mind of a healthy relationship is when you're you're doing a really good job of of not projecting too much on your partner. So for instance, you know, if you are only attracted, like I was using the example of unavailable men before, if you're only attracted to unavailable men, that's fine. You can be with an unavailable man in various ways. It's just that you'll have, you know, you'll learn to understand that his unavailability isn't about you and whether you're worthwhile as a person. You can enjoy and still feel attracted to him, she said, without being in suffering and pain the whole time. Carrie has found her way there herself. She's currently in a relationship with a man she described as super unavailable. And I am good with that, you know? In fact, she has used the relationship to do a lot of the work she talks about. Because I was in love with this person in a way that I had really never felt before. And whether that means anything or not doesn't matter. The point is, is that I just was not willing to get out of it and yet was suffering. So then the question becomes like, how do I stop suffering then? Early on, she realized that she's usually handed just two options. Stay in and suffer or or leave, which is what everyone is telling you to do, you know? So she asked herself, how could she help herself stop suffering without leaving? And so that that's the work I did. And I, just in this relationship alone is probably where I've, I've grown the most in these ways. She has done a ton of the work she does now with clients in her own life, learning to self-contain and self-soothe. I make fun of myself and find those things about me endearing. And so does he, <laughs> because, you know, he's super aware as well. I also really learned how to love another person for the first time. So often, this is not just love addicts, although love addicts especially are so involved with like, well, how am I being loved? How am I being loved? Am I being loved? And, you know, is it the way I want to be loved? Or am I getting my, you know, needs met? One of the things I really learned to do that made being in a relationship so fulfilling and being, you know, connected to another person feels so good is just focusing on loving him and loving him the way he needs to be loved. She also got really in touch with beliefs she had about her hopes for sex and love. I stopped thinking that I wanted the thing that I kept thinking I wanted and instead started understanding that I want to keep wanting. This is actually what I want. And I say that to my clients a lot. They'll say, I want this, you know, the thing. And I say, no, you don't. Obviously you don't. You love this. Uh, clearly you love this. The longing in her case, not the super intertwined relationship with deep emotional intimacy from both sides that she thought she wanted all along. I love it. You know, I, I just, and I constantly help myself bringing that back that obviously I love it or else I wouldn't be doing it. She pointed to a Jungian understanding related to this. Having is evidence of wanting. When you look around you, you will see what it is your unconscious wants. And that includes things that you think you don't want. But obviously, you do. Of course, that doesn't apply to everything. There are many hardships that we don't have any control over and systemic problems that work against many. But in the case of sex and love addictions or compulsions, I see where Carrie's coming from. 
and embracing that idea seems to have helped her a great deal. And when you get connected to that, it's so soothing and peaceful and helps me not constantly ruin my relationships with it. She stopped pushing people away with her perceived needs. And I also stopped trying to make something, in, you know, controlling. There's a lot of control in sex and love addiction, tons of control, controlling other people. And so I really worked to just take my claws out. And that's a huge part of it too, is I constantly am aware of the impulse to control something and work regularly to just allow you know, that's another huge part of it is to take my claws out. And through doing that work, what happens is I learned to tolerate the distress. And wonderfully, I felt loved for the first time. I was able to feel truly loved for the first time because it wasn't about my wound-based needs and instead was just about love. Carrie realized she was feeling loved for the first time gradually. As she described it to me, it sounded like it came in waves. I've had like weeks of just like almost euphoria around that, of feeling just like full of love, loved up. And loving another person so strongly that I didn't have to be around him to do that. Like, it, it was just there. She has also gotten to a place, she said, where she finally doesn't feel the need to step outside of her relationship to be with other men. In fact, I'm kind of grossed out by the thought of that, which is so great. And I'm able to just be by myself a lot. She still loves male attention and considers herself a, quote, terrible flirt, but she doesn't feel the need to take things any further than that. I'm now finally, I think, safe for a partner, you know, like I'm not going to do anything. And that's, that's huge too. I was curious if writing has played a role in or even reflected Carrie's healing as well. And she basically said yes and no. I would say that initially it was evidence of a lack of boundaries, <laughs> which, you know, all sex and love addicts have around being too available. Now it's become something that I feel like has been immensely helpful to other people. And, and I, I mean, I learned that after Loose Girl when I learned, when I got lots of messages, you know, hundreds of thousands, literally of, of messages and people from 13 to 80, like telling me that was their story too. And knowing that it helps. It's not like I provided a guidelines on how to feel better, but it just helps to just not feel alone. You know, it's such a huge part of the healing process. Then with my clients, I'm I mean, I'm, I'm therapeutically self-disclosing, but they, they know a lot and it's helpful for them to know because it's not like I'm over here, like all better. I want them to know that it's a process and I want them to know that we're like in this together, that we're not that different. So much of it is the shame piece. I want to get rid of the shame piece.
Carrie's latest book, Crazy for You, is available most anywhere books are sold. She told me that while the words sex and love addiction are on the cover and used throughout, the book is really for anyone who struggles to have what they want as far as sex and love. Learn more at carrie-cohen.com. If you are enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I would love to hear from you by way of a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the iTunes Store. You can also support the show and get fun extras by joining my community at patreon.com slash girlboner. And if you check out Zencaster for podcasting, I want to hear about it. Learn more or sign up at the discount link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>